You are listening to Post Growth Australia podcast, the podcast where better is definitely better than bigger. Well, hello there, dear listener, and welcome to the fourth episode of Post Growth Australia podcast. Well, I've had a few weeks sabbatical since the extravaganza of the World Population Day episodes. It was a huge privilege for me to check in on the great work being done by incredible people across the globe. In the meantime, the podcast has continued to enjoy some really amazing and encouraging feedback on podcast websites such as Stitcher and Apple. One listener, Luke, wrote the following kind review. He said, I highly recommend the podcast Post Grove Australia, hosted by Michael Bayliss, an important topic of our time. How, as a society, we can focus on solutions such as a steady state economy, managing population levels and our destructive relationship with more. It is very enjoyable and easy listening while navigating these important areas with leading authorities on the subject with a bit of interesting music thrown in. Well, thank you, Luke. Just what the doctor ordered as I wake up in my hometown of Melbourne to an unprecedented six weeks of stage four COVID lockdown. And what has been most evident around the second wave pandemic in Melbourne for me is the degree to which this recent crisis escalated so quickly due to the deregulated, casualised nature of the Victorian economy. It is this very neoliberal outlook that has led to the lax security situation at quarantine hotels. It has led to the outcome that at-risk people continue to travel to work in order to make ends meet with the looming threat of losing their shifts and their livelihoods. The systematic disconnection between people, neighbours and place has resulted in some people engaging in behaviour that puts others at risk. The system we have created is evidently very brittle when it comes to a flexible response to a pandemic. And it's not like the pandemic was unanticipated either. Anyone who's been up to date with the science that links zoonotic disease outbreaks to the exploitation of the ecosystem, where that is through the decimation of ecosystems or the scale of factory farming, All a result of our growth-based society, many of us knew too well that a superbug was just around the corner. I myself have been vocal around this for years, and now that the inevitable has happened, I'm almost banking on my smugness and Cassandra complex to see me through these next weeks, six weeks of cabin fever. Yay. The pandemic is just another in a series of waves as we enter the decade of consequence from centuries of human-centric behaviour in which growth and expansion have been seen as good with the rest of the biosphere seen as something either to be used or merely as a barrier to be shoved aside. Which is why I'm so honoured that my next interview is with the tireless Michelle Maloney, Director of the Australian Earth Laws Alliance, AILA, and the New Economy Network Australia, or NINA. Michelle brings her environmental law expertise into bringing people together to shape a new kind of economy and society which places humans in their rightful place as part of the ecosystem rather than separate and antagonistic to it. Now, I do apologise for the sound quality of the the interview. The experts always warned me that the first few episodes will be shaky until you get used to the hardware. 
I've had a pretty good beginner streak actually, if I don't say so myself. However, the sound quality of my voice drops in and out shakily during my chat with Michelle. It's not the most fitting tribute to one of my favourite heroes. However, I've identified the problem, so hopefully none more of that tomfoolery in future. To start us off though, I'm going to play a song that serves as an elegy to environmental grief. The song's called Life and Appear by Shock Octopus. Now, for those who know me, this is actually a song that I wrote myself for my own band. It is not normally my intention to use a podcast as a springboard for my own music. However, this song is actually enjoying some natural some national promotion at the moment, so I thought it might be a fitting time and context to play it. So please sit back and enjoy the next half hour of PGAP. Creaking, the water line creeping, 
Past lives are catching, our future lies waiting. Things, oh, all the things that I wanted to do. Oh, scattered to the Possibly, sea. possibilities not collapsing to. Well, I'm delighted to be speaking with the ever ecocentric and definitely never anthropocentric Dr. Michelle Maloney. Michelle, how are you? I'm terrific. Thank you so much for having me on your um, discussions. Now, Michelle, if I do anything anthropocentric during this interview, just let me know. And if we get to 10 anthropocentrisms, um, <laughs> you can tell me off. How does that sound? <laughs> Well, I promise I'm a very kind and compassionate person. So um, I am also, we are all fundamentally a little bit anthropocentric, so it's all forgivable. Now, we've come across a few five-syllable words now. So do you want to tell us a little bit more about anthropocentrism, ecocentrism, ecological ethics, and any other five-syllable words that I've left out for the <laughs> listener benefit here? Absolutely. So perhaps the starting place is, Number one, anthropocentrism is a big flash way of saying human-centred, um, whereas earth-centred or biocentric or ecocentric is all about, perhaps the best way to think of it is life-centred, thinking about all living systems, not just human beings. So what I'm interested in really is um, life-centred ways of living and knowing and being and doing so not just thinking about the old human beings and what we think we want from planet Earth, but how do we live with and sustain and care for the plants and the animals and the ecosystems around us that are not just beautiful and morally have a right to exist, but actually are the foundation of our own existence. So so I hope that explains it's it's both simple and complicated. So simple because it's all about the living world, really. Just like life, you know, simply complex or complexly <laughs> right. simple. The basics are simple and then humans make them complicated, yeah. Now, the second time I came across you, Michelle, was at an Earth Ethics Conference, which you mm -hmm. shared, and I was just so impressed, um, not only because you let a, um, me come in and talk about population <laughs> for an hour, which not everyone does, but also because in every single room, people were talking about anthropocentrism as if it mm. was just like a given, and this is something I've struggled with in just about every other environmental um, conference I've been to. So it was such a relief. Yeah, well, um, I really understand because some of these deeper 
I guess, ethical and social ways of thinking about the world that humans have created for themselves, whether you look globally or in Australia, they are difficult to talk about. And not everybody wants to kind of sit back and be philosophical or existential. Um, it can be challenging for those of us who do care about, you know, the bigger systems that we live within and how we can develop those conversations. So I'm really glad that you enjoyed that Earth Ethics Conference. And one of the reasons Ayla runs a lot of events is we find that there are, in fact, many, many people who are so deeply concerned about, or at least in love with, the living world and nature. And it's invigorating, it's comforting, and it really is an act of solidarity to run events where like-minded people come together and explore either the work and the practice they're doing or problems they face. Really, for eight years, we've been trying to build these communities of people and professionals who can both engage at a heart level with their love of nature, but translate that love into their own professional work and how that can perhaps shift the systems that are causing so much devastation across economics and law and policy, education, a whole range of areas. Fantastic. And when I looked at your bio, um, there are just so many organisations that uh, <laughs> you're part of. And You might want to just call that a try-hard workaholic, but I think every time I feel deep grief about the state of the plants and the animals and what we've been doing and I, I think I get involved with more projects and do more work. So um, none of that is to try to impress anyone. It's just because I sort of live and breathe uh, trying, I guess my ethic, my personal ethic is to do as much as I possibly can while I'm on the planet um, to be a force for good, I hope. Um, none of it's born from any kind of arrogance or ego or, or even achievement. It's just this endless drive because I care. You know, every day I care about, I think about the plants and the animals and I worry for them. Um, and I just want to help. That's that's it, really. So um, I, I assume you have grief for the planet because oh, I, I have so do. much grief. Yeah, thank you. That's kind. Yeah. So as well as Australian Earth Law Alliance, um, you're also director the New Economy Network Australia, or Nina. Nina seems to be pretty post-growthy by the looks of it. So <laughs> given this is a Post-Growth Australia podcast, or PGAP, there we go, another acronym. <laughs> Do you want to tell us a little bit more about Nina? Yeah, absolutely. And to tell the story of Nina, I, you know, I, can, I should begin with the story of Ayla because Nina, for me at least, was born from this interest in Earth-centred everything. So to, to give the quick version, the Australian Earth Laws Alliance, Ayla, was created in 2012 by myself and, an, and a group of other environmental lawyers um, it was inspired by Thomas Berry's work around Earth jurisprudence. Earth jurisprudence, um, and particularly his book called The Great Work, Our Way into the Future, is actually a really lovely, cohesive framework for thinking about what industrial societies have done to planet Earth. In his book, The Great Work, Thomas Berry suggests that the big underpinning structures of modern industrialised society, including government and governance, um, law, economics, education, and religion, all of these big institutions that hold up what we might call Western society or globalised industrialised society are all driven by a cultural worldview that sees humans as superior and separate from nature, this anthropocentric idea. And all of these systems, and I would suggest historically since, you know, the colonial era beginning in the 15, late 1500s, all of these sort of European ideas about separation from nature, extractivism and taking, 
going to a new place and using up the resources, this complete separation from a, an ethic of care for the land and the animals. Um, all of these ideas have brought us to where we are today. Now, what's that got to do with law or economics? In the great work, Thomas Berry suggests that um, what human beings are first and foremost are earthlings. And what we need to do is care about place, take our responsibility as just one of many living organisms, you know, in the, in the planet and, and the history of the evolution as well, and, and try to rethink all of these underpinning systems so that we can care for the earth instead of destroy it. What was really lovely is this opportunity to build AILA over the last eight years. Within the first year, we started a range of workshops to see who else was out there. And you would appreciate this, running into so many amazing people working on earth-centered issues was already pretty exciting. Um, but we saw very quickly a lot of community-based activists, a lot of people involved with permaculture, regenerative agriculture, the arts communities, all of these people uh, really get at a fundamental level um, earth-centeredness. They understand the connectivity. They understand we have to care for the earth. And very within the first year or so, we realised that the economy is a big chunk of the the mindset, the culture of industrialised society. And, and in the end, um, by about 2014, a few of us were realising that to take on the economic system, we really needed to build a bit of a, a civil society space for all of the great people already working on post-growth, degrowth, uh, community economies, you know, uh, diverse economies, localization. There's just so many people out there. In 2016, I had the opportunity to run a conference with Professor Bronwyn Morgan from UNSW, and we both said, wouldn't it be great to turn what started as the idea of a social enterprise focus into building a new economy for Australia? And from that, we did this really cool process of inviting people to think about building a network focusing on an alternative economic system or various alternative economic systems. That's really the beginning of NINA. It's been a really interesting and, and very rewarding process to see NINA emerge as an idea, you know, a trouble spot for me in the, the kind of the mid-teens of the century um, and then starting to build with many, many, many other people. And now it's a standalone organisation that me and many others care about with thousands of people connected and a, and a really wonderful energy to it. Kudos to you for bringing so many people together so harmoniously. Well, it hasn't always been harmony. I'm, I'm sure there's there's been a few argy-bargies, darling. There's always, there's always, <laughs> once you bring people in. But I am pleased that a bunch of us spent a good year working on the distributed governance model to help little hubs be created under Nina so people have freedom to do what they want I'm really proud of that um, as a nerdy lawyer type. That governance structure took a lot of thought and a lot of effort and a lot of patience. And I'm starting to see the fruit of that endeavour now as hubs bubble up around Australia and, and we're all kind of talking around the same issues. It's, it's actually really exciting. And I know from personal experience, building up groups, there's always a balance between um, collaboration and hierarchy and trying to get that balance right is always oh, so fraught. So hard so hard and in fact building the governance structures and the support base for Nina with no funding you know again it's it's all voluntary it's all volunteers um, it's been one of the hardest things I've I've personally been involved in but one of the most rewarding and um many many people are devoted to trying to hang on to it and keep it growing and ironically <laughs> growing the network in a post-growth world 
Michelle, can you tell me uh, any things in your day-to-day life that are growing by size or numbers that you wish wouldn't grow so much? For example, the yeah. number of cars on the road or... Yeah, well, certainly something I think should be less numerous is um, coal mines and large-scale extractivism generally. I'd like to see less logging, more sustainable replacements for, for paper, minerals and other things, but definitely um, a, a careful, compassionate reduction in fossil fuel extraction in this country would be a brilliant way to start a degrowth strategy, I think. So what do you tell to people who uh, tell us that there are things like decoupling and substitution and technology and human cleverness so that we can keep on growing infinitely on a finite planet? Yeah, look, it's when you deal with people who for some reason think that technology will save us, I think it's interesting because I've been working on sustainability now for about 35 years and it was harder to justify 30 years ago. But today, I think all you have to do is say, well, if technology was going to save us or make the world a better place, we wouldn't be living, we wouldn't be living in a time with such climate changed scenarios with flooding and storms and bushfires and every other thing. So what do I say to people who think we can grow infinitely or you know, that technology will save us, I'll say no. Um, Human cleverness, technology, it's all part of the solution, but there's no single silver bullet except we have to use less um, and develop regenerative, not extractivist ways of thinking and ways of operating our economy and our lives. Um, So I think it's a conversation today that has an awful lot of ammunition, but um, like many ideologies, rational thought and conversation doesn't always change people's minds. And and in fact, that comes back to why, to me, the new economy network is so important. It's not just about bringing people together and talking about the economy. It's about exciting opportunities and showing people a completely different way to think about the economy and different ways to operate so we can still have a lovely life and jobs um, and comfort and family. But we do it in such a way that is thoughtful, careful, Um, And we select the kinds of economic activities we do that can fit within the capacity of the living world, not just bludgeon our way. Um, And I often think of the colonial expansion of Europe and European powers from the 1600s as a classic example of extractivism. They ran out of resources in Europe, so they went off to other places and used up theirs. Now many of them are kind of looking to other planets. Uh, It's like it's a very different culture to think you can just keep using up and move on to the next thing. Um, versus, say, I work with a lot of Aboriginal colleagues and friends and professionals and, um, you know, their big learning as a culture from what people like Mary Graham and other philosophers say is, you know, they worked out that their giant continent was a finite place and they worked out how to live within those spaces rather than move on and take other things. So it's a very different mindset, I guess. Indeed, and I know that so many people are also scared of change and what living in a post-growth world would be like. So part of this series is asking um, experts such as um, yourself um, to give a a snapshot of what a day-to-day life in a post-growth world might look like. Mm. I also always wonder, will I go out and go to the local market to buy food and go to work or... Um, will I be dining on Warrigal Greens and Jerusalem artichokes in my garden instead? Like, um, what what does what does a day to day life look like that is eco centric and post growthy? And well, it's interesting because I think 
COVID has given us some insights into what it looks like to not travel as much, go out as much, use as much. Um, and I think it's given us some insights into how the little things become much more important. And on a day-to-day -day basis, a simpler life means less overindulgence in fossil fuel consumption, less overindulgence in shopping and consumption of material objects, etc. But it also means more time to be at home, to to be with family, to slow down, to water the garden. You know, it's a slower, more pleasant lifestyle. However, I think in the big picture, and a lot of work has been done on this, degrowth is much more than just um, a sort of simple slowing down. It is, but it's also about a significant change in the structures that we have in place. Like to do it effectively, um, and Sam Alexander's written some excellent articles on this, to really think about a society and to support an entire social system that could slow down, be more earth-centered and use less, we actually have to work together. It's not just about what we do at home on our own. It's how do we have governments or collectives or communities who can say, we're going to share this stuff. We don't have to all own a lawnmower. You know, how do we change the transport system? How do we change the food system so that we're not walking into a grocery store that has just transported food that was grown nearby. You know, I heard folks in Townsville at a new economy symposium really concerned that there were food stocks being grown nearby that were transported all the way to Brisbane, then all the way back again to a Woolies or a Coles in Townsville. So to me, my ideal world would be waking up in the morning, knowing that anything I went to eat and anything I went to wear was actually made somewhere locally, made from sustainable regenerative stuff, whether it's hemp, um, knowing that I could do a whole range of things with less impact on the living world. And I think for me, the big marker is definitely, yes, human-centered, slower lifestyle, more family, more friends, but also more biodiversity. And this is where I'm always interested in, how do we rethink the way we live in urban environments? You know, how do we stop the desperate isolation that many families feel in their little nuclear family in a house. You know, why can't we redesign our society so we have communal gardens, so that we go back to a different way of putting our houses together? To me, what I would love, my, my dream would be to wake up in every single bioregion, and there's 89 of them in Australia, is thriving with biodiversity. Human settlements and impacts are mostly within the productive capacity of that local place and that we're all able to have a fair, just and simpler lifestyle. So it's a complex conversation between the systems change we need and the day-to-day -day life that we could live. Um, and I personally, I'm personally still optimistic that we do have enough creativity and incredible people across the Earth Laws Network, across the NINA Network, I'm inspired every day by the commitment people have to doing the right thing, doing the regenerative thing, you know, and making the world somewhere where everybody can live, not just a select few. What a brilliant answer. I'm not just saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I legitimately feel that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, now, second last question. Now, um, it is Sustainable Population Australia that is backing these series and in employing me. Mm. So I do have to ask everyone the inevitable popular Yeah. The inevitable question on population. Oh, I do not shy away from it. No, go for it. Absolutely. Oh fan fantastic. <laughs> I always offer a duh, duh. <laughs> 
foreboding soundtrack. In fact, I might even play it for the podcast. Just at the, the question of population. I'm. I think you should. No, go for it. Do you think it's possible to have a degrowth society with a growing population? No, I don't. I think I think with seven billion humans on the planet, you know, we have to acknowledge there's so much debate about this, and I know you're aware of it. That's why you posed the question so politely. Many people would say that we can have more humans and, you know, technology means we can still have enough food. And it's like, well, my question is rather than get angry about population, number one, why do people get so cranky about limiting human population? And number two, if this many people is a good idea, surely the rest of the living world, uh, which supports us, would be doing better. But if what we're seeing is a complete decline of of ecosystems, a complete decline in biodiversity around the world, then surely there's a few problems that we're facing. And if 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 human population is one of the many contributing factors, why can't we just have a sensible conversation about it? Um, and I think, again, when you look at some other societies, and I won't go into details, but there were certain societies that recognised if they went beyond their population levels that were sustainable, the entire community would die. And so they made the hard decisions about how many people were effectively a healthy number, you know, and they managed that. There's a lot of Indigenous and other societies around the world that had very strict basic fundamental rules about population size and it wasn't a good idea to have 22 kids, you know. Um, so I think we all have to grow up, stop having our tantrums about all the things we think we want and think about what do we need to survive as a species? And what we need to survive as a species is in fact healthy biodiversity, healthy soils, you know, a flourishing eco ecological system. And we cannot do that if the only species left are humans and the domestic stock um, that are flourishing. And, you know, you've only got to see the basic graphs that show the biomass that's changed. I can't remember the details, but say 300 years ago, it was, you see this pie graph where the wild, Animals in the wild were like, I don't know, half or three quarters, and people were this small amount. Now when you look at that pie, um, you see people and cattle and sheep and everything that we grow for us to eat have taken over this phenomenal amount of the biomass, so life on earth, and the wild is this small slither. So to me, I do think we can have sensible conversations about population. Um, Australia has been riddled with since the you know, early days of colonisation through to the white Australia policy, we're riddled with racist undertones to any conversation about population, but that doesn't mean we don't have them. That's like telling a parent they shouldn't tell their teenager to limit their tech time because they might have a fight about it. These conversations have to be had. We have to impose some discipline on ourselves and, you know, to put it into a positive frame, wouldn't it be lovely if we could live and wake up every day knowing the decisions we were making, the stuff we were using was in fact sustainable um, and, you know, our structures were supporting healthy communities and healthy lifestyles, not just letting us all run rampant like spoilt, um, spoilt two-year-olds. I think it's time for a little bit of growing up and a little bit of discipline but still a lot of fun and creativity. Um, but not everyone, not everyone wants to hear that message, I know. But I'm totally up for it. I'll have that discussion. Well, thank you for being so open to that. Indeed, I was um, interviewed yesterday on 3CR and um, the interviewer, we were talking about population as we we're talking about 
the PGAP podcast series and she said she felt herself physically contracting mm. during a conversation. Mm. Like it's just, it, it's, it's such a charged topic that has a physiological yeah. response to people and I feel that it's, um, you know, a, a bit of a role of myself and these series to not only explore um, everyone's ideas on post-growth but also everyone's ideas on population and just to air it out a bit. Absolutely. And I think, I think it's hard for people because of, as I say, there's, there's, when we talk about natural population uh, growth, meaning the people who are already here, and then when we talk about immigration, I think if you apply compassion to the state of the planet and remember maybe the ecocentric way is the best way to talk about population. You know, what right do human beings have to take up so much space that the rest of the living world will suffer and disappear because that will be ultimately our total destruction as well. And if people don't understand that, then we obviously need to have conversations about it. I'm not saying I know the answers. I'm not saying I know the magic number, but I do think having those conversations and respecting the wombats, the numbats, the centipedes, the butcher birds, the magpies, koalas, possums, you know, it's more than just people. And maybe that's why the population conversation upsets folk because they actually have to look at themselves and go, oh, dear, what do we think about this? And look, in terms of equity and justice, obviously any discussion about population has to be handled with compassion and kindness and generosity and not to exclude um you know, the complexity and the difficulty of that conversation. But imagine if we had leaders, imagine if we had leaders who had the capacity to lead some of those conversations with gentleness and kindness and a productive outlook, I think we'd have a very different society, actually. So I keep imagining that too <laughs> <laughs> and crossing my to fingers, dream. crossing everything. So we're running out of time. I am so sorry. It was a, a fantastic conversation, at least from my perspective. I've enjoyed it too. <laughs> I don't want to make any assumptions for you, <laughs> Michelle. But um, if the listener uh, feels inspired by what they've heard um, and inspired, I think they should. <laughs> um, and if they want to find out more and about the campaigns that you're doing through Ayla or Nina or if they just want to say Hello, where can they go and what can they do? Absolutely. Um, well, I would love people to have a look at our website. The AILA website is um, www.earthlaws.org.au. We jokingly refer to that website as the mothership. If you go to that website and have a look at our programs, you'll see we have an Earth Arts program with a dedicated website. We've got the Australian People's Tribunal, uh, which looks at ecological justice. Um, we have this wonderful program called Green Prints, which is about using bioregions as a way of looking at ecological limits. But if you go to earthlaws.org.au, you can read all about AILA. And to find our wonderful New Economy community, that's easy, neweconomy.org.au. Um, and to do, please send emails, say hello, join email lists. We're all volunteers. We're all homegrown. We scrounge for money here and there. If you listen to this and feel inspired, find our donation page. We have DGR status now. We're grown-ups. So we're very excited to have anyone share with us or become a monthly supporter or, or just say g'day. You're very welcome. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. It's been a delight having you on. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
Well, here we are at the end of another episode of Post Growth Australia podcast or PGAP. I really hope you enjoyed the interview with Michelle Maloney as much as I did. It's just so inspiring to talk to someone with so much passion, evident passion for the natural world and is able to put so much of that grief that you have, um, you know, when you're so conscious of the impacts that we have in the world to something that's just um, such a tangible force of good. I'm so inspired, I need to say again. I'd like to share another review uh, from Apple Podcasts on the PGAP review. This comes from Michael in Canberra. Michael says, mind the PGAP. What a refreshing podcast. It provides so much needed ray of rational sunlight to us catastrophists stuck in the internet bunker awaiting for an austere future for humanity. Intrepid campaigner Michael Bayless, oh, thank you, Michael, has returned from a global foraging expedition with a swag of well-informed interviewees who talk engagingly about their work to build a better and not bigger world. Highly recommended. And what poetry that was, Michael. (laughs) Thank you so much. Um, Michael also said, P.S. One area of exponential growth I could do without is the unwanted and functionally useless tufts of ear hair that now seem to occupy the most fertile spaces on my otherwise bald head. That's probably the most hilarious response I've got, actually, so far to the question, what is something in your life that you're glad is the size it is and you're happy that it's not bigger? Or what's something in your life that's got bigger um, and you wish it was smaller? So thank you, Michael. And if any of you... um, want to share bits of your life that fall into that question, um, please feel free to email me anytime at media at population.org.au. Now, I'm looking forward to the next couple of episodes. I'm interviewing some amazing people, including one famous person. So, (laughs) hope I don't stall in that interview. But until then, um, if you're in Melbourne... uh, Have a good lockdown. (laughs) If you're elsewhere in the world, uh, have a good, hopefully, not lockdown. And see you soon.